0: How many of you have uh, heard of the book All I Really Need to Know I Learned in Kindergarten? Raise your hand if you ever heard of that book. Or maybe you've seen the poster and the different uh, paraphernalia that came out after that. But uh, Robert Fulgham was actually the author of this book back in 1986, All I Really Need to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. And uh, he says some interesting things that I I find uh, I find very uh, unique to, uh, to his book. I wanted to read you uh, some excerpts of this. He says, "...most of what I really need to know about how to live and what to do and how to be, I learned in kindergarten. These are the things I learned. Share everything. Play fair. Don't hit people. Put things back where you found them. Clean up your own mess. Take things, don't take things that aren't yours." Say you are sorry when you hurt somebody. Wash your hands before you eat. Flush. Watch for traffic, hold hands, and stick together. I think that's some good advice right there. And I think we do learn all we need to know in kindergarten from time to time. But my personal favorite is this one. Think of what a better world it would be if we all had cookies and milk about 3 o'clock every afternoon and then lay down with our blankets for a nap. What do you guys think? Yes, that would be that would make the life that would make, that would make the world a better place, wouldn't it? You know, Robert Fulgham made millions of dollars. I'm sure on this book. It was a number one bestseller. In New York Times still continues today to be a, a great seller, uh, one that many many people own and have read. All I really need to know I learned in kindergarten. It's a fascinating concept. You know, it's probably not altogether true. We we use it as hyperbole, right? In our Bible study today, Jesus is going to make a kind of statement like Robert Fulgham did 22 years ago. Instead instead of saying, however, that all you really need to know, you can learn in kindergarten, Jesus, in our story today in Mark 6, is going to make a radically different statement. His statement is going to be, all you really need to know in life, you can learn from a basket of bread. The title of my message today is All I Really Need to Know I Learned in a Basket of Bread. You say, what in the world are we going to be learning today? Well, I'm excited about this message. I want you to turn to Mark chapter 6. I think we're going to find this study here this morning to be an extremely unique look at one of the often overlooked passages in the Gospels. Turn to Mark chapter 6, we're going to be in verse 45, and in all honesty, the the title of this message is not going to make much sense until the end of the message. We're going to be walking through a story and you're going to be saying, well, what does that have to do with, with a basket of bread? And then we're going to come to the end of the message and it's all going to come together. And we're going to see what Jesus was trying to communicate to the disciples at the very end of our story today. So hang in there. And we will soon see the value that is found in a basket of bread. But first, before we get to our main text in Mark 6.45, I want to remind us that we're leaving the story of the feeding of the 5,000. We're moving past a story that has just happened where Jesus has fed 5,000 men. Not to mention other women and children. This was perhaps a crowd of 10,000 people. In the feeding of the five thousand, there were a few things that were happening, and I'm not going. To, we're not going to review the text. I'm just going to summarize really briefly. On the one hand, we had Jesus showing compassion on the people. Jesus was very compassionate toward the people, and he wanted to feed them, to care for them. On the other hand, we had the disciples saying, ah, "Send them away, send them home, let them go get food on their own." Let's, let's move on, Jesus. We've, we're tired. We've been ministering. Send the people away. Jesus is compassion. The disciples say, send them. Finally, the final observation I want to make about the feeding of the 5,000 is that Jesus makes the disciples serve the people. Jesus makes the disciples, the ones who said, send them out, He makes them serve the people. And not only that, He makes them clean up after the meal is over. He makes them pick up baskets of bread when the meal is over. With that context in mind, I want to approach our text today. Mark 6, 45-52. Following the feeding of the 5,000, it says, Immediately, He, Jesus, made His disciples get into the boat. And go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent them away, he departed to the mountain to pray. Now when evening came, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land. For he saw them, then he saw them straining at rowing, for the wind was against them. Now about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea, and would have passed them by. And when they saw Him walking on the sea, they supposed it was a ghost. And they cried out. For they all saw Him and were troubled. But immediately He talked with them and said to them, Be of good cheer. It is I. Do not be afraid. Then He went up into the boat to them, and the wind ceased. And they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure, and they marveled. For they had not understood about the loaves because their heart was hardened. Verse 45 and 46. Immediately Jesus made His disciples get into the boat and go before Him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while He sent the multitudes away. And when He had sent them away, He departed to the mountain to pray. Now, the The word I've highlighted on the screen behind me is the word made. It's a peculiar word, isn't it? Verse 45 where it says made. He made His disciples get into the boat. Our English translations don't give us the full force of that word. The word in in Greek means to force someone. To compel someone. To urge someone. To insist. Please, get on the boat. Get on the boat. Go. I insist that you get on the boat. I urge you to leave this place. Please go now. Go to Bethsaida. I'll meet you there later. Please go. He made them get on the boat. Why is Jesus so insistent that the disciples leave the scene? Mark doesn't tell us. But the Gospel of John does. Let's take a look at John's account following the feeding, or during the feeding of the 5,000. Mark 6, 11-15 And Jesus took the loaves, and when He had given thanks, He distributed them to His disciples and the disciples to those sitting down, and likewise of the fish, as much as they wanted. So when they were filled, He said to His disciples, Gather up the fragments that remain, so that nothing is lost. Therefore they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. Then those men, when they had seen the sign, the men that had eaten, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, This is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. What do the multitudes attempt to do? After eating the miraculous meal, they seek to install Jesus as king. What did this mean? What did this mean? Clearly, in that day, in the first century, in Jesus' day, Rome ruled over Israel. The Jews had no claim to the throne of the Roman Empire, nor were they capable of overthrowing Rome by their own might. But nevertheless, the Jews were looking for the return of their king. They were awaiting the king promised long ago by the prophets. They were looking for God's anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ, the future Davidic king of Israel. And upon watching Jesus of Nazareth feed the 5,000, upon seeing this miraculous meal, upon receiving bread and fish out of a few loaves and a few fish, the men who had eaten this meal looked at Jesus and said, there He is. There's the King. The King we've been waiting for. And they sought to to coronate Him right then and there. They made the contention that Jesus was the King. And their contention was correct. Jesus is the King. Which begs the question, why didn't Jesus let them install Him as King? Why instead did He make the disciples, get on the boat, go! I urge you, I insist, leave. Why did He send the multitudes away? Why didn't He let them coronate Him right then and there? It is. Who He is, He is the King. He is God's Promised One, the Christ, the Messiah. Why did He not let them crown Him then? To be short, the kingdom envisioned by the Jews of that day, by the Jews who had partaken of that miraculous meal, and by all Jews of that day, was a far cry from the kingdom that Jesus sought to establish. We've spoken of this many times before. The Jews were looking for a powerful king. A militaristic king. A militaristic Messiah who would destroy Rome and who would return power to Israel. Such was not the purpose of Jesus' first coming. Of Jesus' first advent. He was not coming with a sword. And so Jesus, in an effort to avoid misconceptions about His mission, avoids the crown he avoids the crown now it's very likely folks and we can't we can't prove this but it's very very likely that the disciples were with the crowd in this desire to crown Jesus as king it's very very likely though the Gospels don't say it that the disciples upon having served 5,000 men women and children my goodness imagine what a meal what a service that would be. Those of you who have ever been a waiter or a waitress, a server, excuse me, I don't know, what do, we, what do you call them today? What do they want to be called? Servers, right? Servers, okay? If you've ever been a server, there's always a certain title, you can't call them a stewardess, you've got to call them a flight attendant, right? All right. If you've ever been a server, 5,000 people and you have 12 servers. Imagine that for a moment. 5,000 people, 12 servers. The disciples are tired all of a sudden they see the crowd rising up saying, it's the King! It's the King! They start thinking, hey, it is the King. You're right. And we are His disciples. So if He gets crowned, we become governors. If He gets crowned, we become advisors. If He gets a crown, we get power. No doubt they had visions of grandeur in their heads. They would become men of great power if Jesus was crowned. They would command great respect. They would be admired by all. Who wouldn't desire such things? No question in my mind, the disciples were with the people in their desire to crown Jesus as King. But while their visions of power danced in their heads, we see Jesus commanding them to leave immediately. Go. Get into the boat now. Leave this place. Our time is done. I speculate the disciples left with great reluctance and annoyance and frustration. They've served 5,000 plus. They had an opportunity for power. Gone. Now they've got to get into a boat and row. If you... As we return to verse 46, Mark tells us that Jesus dismisses the crowd. He says, go, and he goes up to the hillside to pray. He leaves the hustle and bustle of the crowds and retreats to a quiet place to be with the Father. We don't know what he prayed, but again, I think it's safe to say that Jesus probably was sharing with the Father his frustration that the people and his own disciples were missing the point of his coming to earth. Verse 47, and the early part of 48. Now when evening came, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land. Then he, Jesus, saw them straining at rowing, for the wind was against them. Meanwhile, while Jesus is praying, the frustrated disciples are on the boat, on the Sea of Galilee, rowing. Needless to say, they were not singing row, row, row your boat gently down the sea, merrily, 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 life is but a dream. They were frustrated at Jesus. It wasn't a merry time for them. They were upset with Jesus for giving up their opportunity for power. And Mark tells us on that particular night, the wind was fierce. So much so that Jesus could see in the early hours of the morning But they had made little progress on their trip across the Sea of Galilee. We pick up the story in the middle of verse 48. Now about the fourth watch of the night, which should have been about anywhere from 3 to 6 a.m. approximately. So the sun is perhaps just beginning to shed some light on, on the sea. About the fourth watch of the night, He came to them walking on the sea and would have passed them by. And when they saw Jesus walking on the sea, they supposed it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw Him and were troubled. As they struggled to row, Jesus began to walk toward them. This is the second time in Mark where we see Jesus and the disciples on the sea. Back at the end of Mark 4, uh, you'll find another story uh, which uh, Doug had a great message on. I encourage you to listen to that. And here's the second instance on the Sea of Galilee where Jesus is with His disciples amidst a storm. But unique to our story today, Jesus actually walks on the water. And as He nears the boat, the disciples cry out, Look! A ghost! Imagine if you saw somebody walking on the water. (laughs) You know? I I don't want to pass this up and just walk right by it. Just stop and think. I'm looking at someone walking on the water. Just imagine the trepidation that they would have felt at that moment. The disciples would have been terrified. Not knowing who it was. The light was still not clear enough. Their minds could not grapple it. They're seeing a figure walk toward them on the water. And in some sense, quite naturally, they think it's a ghost. It must be a ghost. They were frightened. They didn't know who it was. And Mark says that Jesus would have passed them by, which is a really peculiar statement. We're not sure if he means to say that from the disciples' perspective, it looked like Jesus was passing by them. Or if Jesus really did intend to walk by them. We really don't know. There's... We'll get to some speculation on that in just a moment. But it looks like he's going to walk by them. And at the end of verse 50. But immediately, but immediately he talked with them and said to them, Be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. Verse 51. Then he went up into the boat to them and the wind ceased and they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure and marveled. Be of good cheer, Jesus says. It's me. It's not a ghost. Do not be afraid. As He spoke these words and He entered the boat, the wind ceased, the waves stopped, and the disciples were dumbfounded as they had been so many times before in the Gospel of Mark. It's possible, you might want to underline the words, it is I. It's very possible that those words, which are in Greek, ego eimi, are a veiled reference to Jesus' deity. You see, ego eimi in Greek are the same words used in Greek to describe the Hebrew words I am who I am in Exodus 3 when God speaks with Moses. Moses says, and who, who should I tell them? I'm representing. What should I say to the people and to Pharaoh and to all those that I, come to, that I come to? In whose name am I coming? And God says to Moses, tell them I am who I am. Ego eimi in Greek. Jesus says, don't be afraid. I am. It's me. Very possibly a veiled reference to His deity. Not not entirely. You can't just take that to the bank, but it's quite possible that that's what Jesus is intending to say there. Here's another speculation, and I'll just throw it out there, and you guys can take it for what it's worth. Notice the themes that are happening. Jesus has fed the 5,000 with bread. He's fed the 5,000. He's walking on water and He's passing them by. Three three interesting themes there. He's fed the 5,000 now. He's walking on water and He's passing them by. If you really remember the Exodus story well, you will recall that some of the most significant moments in the Exodus were the crossing of the Red Sea, the manna from heaven, in the moment when Moses in the cleft of the rock saw God pass by. The end of Exodus 33. Three very striking stories in the Exodus. Three motifs that we see in our story in Mark. It very well could be that Mark is making the point that Jesus is the greater Moses. Jesus is the prophet who was to come? Jesus is the greater Moses. It's very possible that Mark is alluding to this. We cannot be sure. But the passing by comment is especially striking. One that you would not expect to be there if it were not an allusion to something in the Old Testament. Perhaps the end of Exodus 33. But now we come to a most peculiar verse verse 52. Jesus is on the boat. He's calmed the wind, calmed the waves. And Mark editorializes. He writes a comment here. Just kind of throws it out there in the middle of nowhere almost. And he says, For they, the disciples, had not understood about the loaves because their heart was hardened. And collectively we say, Huh? I said, Huh? When I read this? What is that? What a random comment to make by Mark. What a random editorial comment to throw in there after the wind and the waves. He goes back to the story before it and he says, for the disciples had not understood about the loaves because their heart was hardened. You're not alone in your confusion if you have confusion on verse 52. It's one that befuddles even the most prominent Bible scholars. Um, The basic question they and we are now going to ask ourselves is this. What don't the disciples understand about the loaves? What don't the disciples understand about the loaves? And the reason this question is so difficult to answer is because Jesus doesn't say what they were supposed to realize as a result of feeding the 5,000. This question, this question, what don't the disciples understand about the loaves, will be our focus for the remainder of our time here this morning. Some scholars, as we focus in on this question, some scholars argue the disciples didn't understand that a miracle had been performed at all. So, Jesus So Mark is editorializing that that they didn't understand that a miracle had occurred the first time and so their hearts were hardened and and they had no understanding. I I find that to be a very unconvincing argument. I'm sure you do too. It it doesn't seem to ring true that that 5,000 people could be fed from a few bread and a couple fish and that the disciples wouldn't know about it and that the multitudes would know about it. That seems very unlikely, right? So we can kind of X that out. Other scholars like to speculate that maybe Jesus was frustrated with the disciples that they didn't value the miracle enough. They didn't esteem the miracle enough. Perhaps their poor attitudes before, during, and after the miracle was a source of frustration for Jesus, and thus he was rebuking them for acting begrudgingly. I think this comes a little bit closer to the answer, but not fully. In fact, the answer I'm going to propose today to this question, what don't they get about the loaves, is an answer which is not a common one, which I've yet to see um, in commentaries about this verse, yet one in which I believe is extremely close with the biblical evidence to the answer to this question. So it's almost like, folks, we're, we're going out on a limb here. Because everybody who reads this verse has speculations to the answer. Very few people are very definitive on their answer. But as we answer this question, what don't the disciples understand about the loaves, I think we are going to find an answer that is very, very satisfying. And one that I think is really going to help us in our own personal lives. To get the best answer to this question, I believe that there is one more passage in Mark that gives us a clearer picture of what the disciples were not understanding about the loaves. Jump ahead to Mark 8.15, if you will. Jump ahead to Mark 8.15. And in Mark 8.15, we're about to read a section of Scripture that occurs after the feeding of the 5,000 and after the feeding of the 4,000. Okay, so we're moving ahead in our, in our story in Mark. Jesus has performed two miraculous feedings, 5,000 and 4,000 which are uncanny in their resemblance to one another, but yet are distinct. And the verses we're about to read occur perhaps just days, just days after the feeding of the 4,000. Mark 8, 15-21. And He, Jesus, charged them, the disciples, saying, Take heed. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, is it because we have no bread? The disciples had forgotten to bring some bread on their journey. And Jesus was making that statement in verse 15. Take heed, be, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And, and the disciples thought amongst themselves, is He saying this because we have no bread? But, verse 17, But Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, why do you reason because you have no bread? Why are you talking about bread? Do you not yet perceive nor understand is your heart still hardened having eyes do you not see having ears do you not hear and do you not remember when i broke the five loaves for the five thousand how many baskets full of fragments did you pick up they said to him twelve and also when i broke the seven for the four thousand how many large baskets of fragments did you take up And they said, seven. And he said to them, How is it you do not understand? Notice the sequence. This will help you see this a little bit better. Notice the sequence in the passage we've just read. There's a fourfold sequence that you'll notice. First, In verses 17 to 18, Jesus makes the claim, do you not understand is your heart hardened? Are you without understanding? Are your hearts hard? Then he goes on to ask a question. He says, how many baskets did you pick up at the feeding of the 5,000? In verse 19. And they give him an answer. They say, well, we picked up 12 baskets. He says, okay, let me ask you another question. How many baskets did you pick up at the feeding of the 4,000? He asked this right afterwards in verse 20. They said, well, we, we, we picked up seven baskets that time, Lord. What are you getting at? And he concludes in verse 21 with the same statement, Do you not understand? Don't you get it? The disciples, I don't, I don't know if they got it. I have a feeling most of us in this room right now are still saying, Get what? What do you mean, Jesus? We're asking the question, what don't the disciples understand about the loaves? Well, what are they supposed to understand about these fragments of bread, Jesus? What are you getting at? What does it matter that that the disciples picked up leftover bread after your miracle? What possible significance should that have for them? What possible significance should it have for us today? If you're still confused, you should be. But hang tight. The answer's coming very shortly. I, for one, believe the answer to this question, as we still wonder what Jesus is getting at, I believe the answer to this question is found back. In John's account of the story, we've already read it in John 6:12, and I want to read it again, but before we read it, in John 6:12, we find the only mention, note this, the only mention of Jesus commanding, verbally commanding the disciples to pick up the leftovers. In all the other gospels, they omit Jesus' command. They simply say the disciples picked up the fragments. In John 6.12, he verbally says, pick them up. Go pick up the leftover bread. Let's take a look at John 6.12. So when they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. Apolumai in Greek. Verb to lose. Gather up the fragments that remain, so that nothing, none of my bread, is lost. Apollumai. Folks, this isn't a trivial command. This isn't an insignificant request made by Jesus that happens to have made it into the Gospel of John. Quite the contrary. Jesus tells us in Mark 8, 17-21, that there's something deeply significant about this command. That there's something deeply significant about the leftover bread that the disciples picked up after feeding the multitudes. Mark 8:17 to 21 tells us that there's something inherent in the act of picking up the bread that should have triggered some kind of divine understanding in the minds of the disciples. And so the command in John 6:12 is of tremendous importance. We pass it, and yet we need to recognize that John 6.12 is of critical importance to the question we're asking today, what don't they get about the loaves? And Jesus says in John 6.12, gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. Apollumai. That term lost means to lose, to perish, or to destroy. In essence, Jesus was saying, Pick up the bread that remains so that none of the bread I've given perishes. Pick up the bread that remains so that none of the bread I've given perishes. Not long after Jesus issues this command, Jesus offers another statement. About not losing something. It's not happenstance that the theme of bread and the theme of apolumai reoccurs at what we're about to read in John six, thirty-five to forty. It says this. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. And he who believes in Me shall never thirst. Jump to verse 38. For I have come down from heaven not to do My own will, but the will of Him who sent Me. This is the will of the Father who sent Me, that of all He has given Me, I should lose, Apalumi, nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of Him who sent Me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in Him may have everlasting life, and I will raise Him up at the last day. This is the will of the Father who sent Me, that of all He has given Me, I should lose, apalumae, nothing. Gather up the fragments of bread so that nothing is lost. And so we ask the question again what don't the disciples understand about the loaves? What do you mean, Jesus? I very strongly make the case that Jesus means this. In the miraculous feeding of the multitudes, I don't have, well, let's just read this together. In the miraculous feeding of the multitudes, Jesus was giving physical sustenance to the people as a prelude to the eternal sustenance He wished to give them. It was, as if, it was as if Jesus was saying, as this bread feeds you, this physical bread, so also I am the bread of life that can satisfy your hunger forever. Partake of Me and you will live. In asking the disciples to distribute the bread to the people, it was as if Jesus was telling His disciples, your chief concern in life is not to seek power, influence, or the overthrow of Rome, but to give the bread of life, Me, to all who will partake of it. And finally, in commanding them to gather up to pick up the leftover bread, to gather up the fragments of bread, it was as if Jesus was declaring to the twelve, I am the bread of life, and the sustenance that I offer is precious and it's valuable. And I'm asking you, my disciples, to take great care, great care, in distributing the life that I offer to others. The fragments of bread I've asked you to pick up are symbolic. They're symbols of the eternal sustenance that I offer to all peoples. Treat Me, the bread of life, and what I offer, eternal sustenance, with great care. This is what the disciples did not get about the basket of bread. they didn't realize that as they were picking up the fragments of bread on the ground left over, physical sustenance on the ground, that Jesus was trying to communicate to them, that's your job. Your job as my ambassadors is to pick up the bread of life, is to care for it, is to care for my truth, to care for the precious saving message of eternal life, by faith in Jesus Christ, and to care for that bread, and to make sure that it is not perishing, lost, or destroyed, Apollumai. Gather it up so that none of it is lost. Because as this physical bread nourishes, so also I'm offering eternal sustenance in me, the bread of life. And so when the disciples when they bemoaned their status as servants, when they grumbled about having to serve bread to the multitudes, when they grew frustrated that Jesus had denied the crown and had denied them power and influence, it should come as no surprise that Jesus tells them, look, At the basket of bread. That's your mission. Do you not understand? Is your heart hardened? How many baskets of bread did you pick up after the feeding of the 5,000? Twelve. How many baskets of bread did you pick up after the feeding of the 4,000? Seven. Do you not understand? as you're picking up this bread, as you're caring for it, physical sustenance no less, but as you are carefully handling this physical sustenance, so also you are communicating to me and to all those who are around you that you intend to care for the eternal sustenance of the people to whom you minister to. That your mission is people, not power. That your mission is people. Not a crown. That you're to treat the bread of life with great value and honor. Knowing that the bread of life is the only way a person can be truly satisfied. Gather up the fragments so that nothing is lost, Apollumai. Don't allow one bit of My bread to perish, Apollumai. Don't substitute My truth for another truth. John 6.27 Do not labor for the food which perishes, Apollumai, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you. Don't be deceived by the thief. That thief, the one who desires to take My bread from you. John 10.10 The thief comes; does not come except to steal, to kill, and to destroy Apollumai. I have come that they might have life and that they may have it more abundantly. I'm greater than that thief, Jesus says. And I will not lose those who believe in me, John ten twenty seven and twenty eight. Because my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Apelumi. Neither shall anyone, no thief, snatch them out of my hand. The sustenance that I offer to you is God's gift, to you, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, Apolumai, but have everlasting life. Needless to say, uh, Jesus doesn't use that word lightly in the Gospel of John, does He? No, when He uses that verb, when when He talks about losing or perishing or destroying, He's saying, listen up. Listen up. Don't go after bread that perishes. Don't go after a kind of life satisfaction that's not going to give it to you. He says, you seek the eternal bread. The bread of life. Me, Jesus says. Don't listen to that thief. He's trying to destroy you, Opalumi. Listen to my words. My sheep... They hear me. They know me, and I know them. And I'm going to give them eternal life when they believe in me, and they will not perish, Shapalumai. Because I've come, God has sent me that all who believe in me should not perish, Shapalumai. And so pick up the fragments of bread, disciples. You gather those baskets. Because in gathering those baskets, you are symbolically declaring that you are caring for the bread of life. A closing thought, a couple of closing thoughts. Our appetite for power, influence, and control comes from consuming the leaven or the false teaching of the Pharisees and those like them in the world today. Don't miss what the disciples were after, they were after the crown the power. And they were consuming at that time the leaven of the Pharisees and so Jesus tells them in Mark 8:15, stop eating the leaven of the Pharisees. You're buying into the wrong truth. Secondly, but true and abiding sustenance is ours when we believe in the bread of life, Jesus Christ, and nourish ourselves on His teaching in the Word of God. He is the only true sustenance in life. You can't be satisfied apart from Christ. You can't find satisfaction apart from the Word of God and the bread of life, Jesus Christ. And so we can firmly declare today that all you really need to know, you can learn from a basket of bread. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, You have given us Your Son, Jesus Christ, that if we believe in Him, we should not perish, be lost, be destroyed, but have everlasting life. Lord, You tell us to handle carefully the bread of life, Your Son Jesus Christ. To handle His message carefully. That when we look upon those baskets of bread, it should be a reminder to us to understand, to not become hard-hearted, but to recognize as we care for the bread of life, we are fulfilling our mission to take Your message of life to the lost, to those who are perishing. I pray, Lord, that we would learn this lesson here this morning. That we would carefully handle the bread of life who is the object of our faith and whose message is the way to everlasting life with You.